0: Here Tonight, Doug and Connie and, and uh, Lyle and Pat and Beverly and I ate dinner together and then we took the ark to get here. It was, uh, boy, it was, it's raining. And Pat, I, I'm sorry to tell you, she let me borrow her umbrella and by the time I got to the car it turned inside out. So I don't know if it will ever be the same again, but I, I am so thankful you're here. And I, and I have to ask myself, why? You know, you could have been somewhere else and you could have stayed out of the weather. And and why did you come tonight? And I I realize there's a lot of answers that can be given to that question. Uh, I have heard of a friend that uh, went to, uh, everywhere that he went, he asked this question, why are you here? He made the mistake of asking that question when he was doing a chapel service at an institute for people who were mentally ill. And he said, why are you here? And one of the guys in the back looked at the other and then stood up and said, well, we're all here because we're not all there, (laughs) you know? But I hope you have a better reason for being here tonight. I hope you came here because we want to be a little more like Jesus. We want to draw closer to him. We want to draw closer to one another. We want to be people who understand a little more, dream a little deeper, reach a little higher than we did before. We want to refocus ourselves on the things that are really, really important. And so that's what we're doing in this, and opening our eyes, opening our eyes to all the things that are here tonight, opening our eyes to the harvest. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 35 and read down through the end of that chapter through verse 38. I want you to listen to what's happening. Jesus is preaching in all the cities and villages. And he says he was teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. And he had compassion, it says, when he saw the multitudes, because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When was the last time that you prayed this prayer, God, send out laborers into your harvest? And when was the last time you prayed that prayer and realized that one of the laborers that he wanted to send out was you? This is really important that he intends for us to be the people that he sends out. Every one of us has this powerful opportunity to participate. Jesus says, I have chosen you that you should go forth and do good works. I've chosen you to do this. You and I have been chosen to bear fruit for God. That's what he said. Everybody here. It ought to take a little pressure off when I realize that not everybody does that in exactly the same way. Not everybody does that in the way that somebody else is going to do that, and you and I all have a part. Paul said, I planted Apollos watered, God gave the increase. You have a part, and your job is not necessarily to bring that person from here outside of Christ to where they become a Christian, or to become a mature Christian. You're somewhere in that process. It's sort of like when I think about Niagara Falls, if you've ever been there, it's one of the most powerful falls in the United States, an amazing thing, 20 feet deep where it goes over the edge and then the spray comes up over the top. It's absolutely amazing, beautiful. Then I'll start with single raindrops falling somewhere way upstream that formed tiny rivulets that became part of a, of a small creek that then became a part of a, of a tributary that became a part of the Niagara River until it all gathered together and those raindrops made that difference. Somewhere in the process, that's where you are. You are one of those drops. And when you realize that, when you recognize that God has made us just one part in a process that God has already started in bringing people to him, it makes a difference. I wanna tell you a secret. Every person on earth is a person God is working on. Whether they're an atheist or a Buddhist, doesn't really matter. Whether they are a Hindu, it doesn't really matter. God cares about everybody that he's made and don't think for a minute, he leaves them alone. From the time that we are born until the time that we die, God is bringing influence in the lives of people and he wants to bring them to people who will move them closer to him, which means God is working to bring people close to you for a reason. All in your life, it's not just an accident. All in your life, God is doing something powerful with other people, and he wants you to do that. He wants you to become that. I I want to tell you a story that's a little little long in the making, but hopefully not too long in the telling. It's the story of America, and for many, many of you, it's a story that begins before you were born, uh, but you've become the inheritor of the story, and where it goes from here is up to you. But I want you to imagine this moment just in history for us. I want to tell you that on December 7th, 1941, our world entered into war. America entered into war. Pearl Harbor was bombed, and millions of people across America were up in arms about it, and they said, we want to do something about it, and millions of young men left the farms and went to the war effort, and then millions of women left the farm and went to the Effort to make sure that everything was manufactured. Women who had not worked before, but now suddenly were necessary for the workforce. That war went on for a long time, and men sacrificed, and many of them died. We won that war, and then when the men came back, they found an America that was vastly different than the America that they had left before. And they longed for the old America. They didn't know how to do that. People had moved to the cities. In, in those short war years, America went through its most dramatic demographic shift where we went from being an agricultural rural society to more of a manufacturing urban society necessary because of the war effort. So men came back and what they wanted was that farm out in the country again and that wasn't available because they had to have work and by the way, the girls that they had left behind didn't want to quit work and so they continued to work as well. But they longed for the peace and the order and the, and the contentment that they believed they had before December 7th. So what did they do? They invented something in America. We invented suburbs. Suburbs are like a, a small little town connected to a large urban area. And people moved into those suburbs and it was, they were able to have that house with the picket fence. They were able to have the dream. And every suburb had its own police department. Every suburb had its own schools. And because we believed at that time that being an American meant that you saluted the flag and that, in fact, you went to church, they built churches in all those suburbs as well. It was in that time after World War II that the churches of Christ found some of their greatest growth. We made a discovery that if you would put a church in a good place in a suburb, people would come. And they did. And we also spent much of our time not trying to convince people that there's a God or that they need to become people who believe in God because they already did. Most of our evangelistic effort at that time was, you need to be in the right church. There is a church that seeks to be just what God said. It seeks to do just what God said, to follow the Bible and the Bible alone, and that's where you need to be, and we told people that, and people responded to that, and the church grew. But things changed after a few years. There was the disappointment of Korea, and then when you come into the 60s, there is the tragedies that are associated with the Vietnam War. There came a generation in the 60s that began to see things differently. Unlike their predecessors, they did not trust their leaders anymore. Anybody over 30 was somewhat suspect. They not only didn't trust their leaders, but they weren't really sure that anything that they had been taught was necessarily true. So they began to question the values of their parents and their grandparents and asking themselves, is marriage really necessary? And what does it mean that you're religious and does that matter at all? So we raised a generation of people who no longer thought being an American meant going to church. And I want to tell you something, that what was happening in the culture, as it always does, what happened in the culture began to happen in the church itself. The culture was questioning our leaders, and we began to do exactly the same things. By the end of the 60s and through the 70s and mid-80s, we published all kinds of publications and books about false teachers in the church and that you couldn't trust this person or couldn't trust that person. We began to develop a spirit of fear and suspicion so that people who used to would go to Gospel meetings and lectureships wouldn't go to Gospel meetings and lectureships because somebody might be there who was written up in one of these papers. And so we quit doing that. This spirit of, of suspicion became really strong in us. Somewhere toward the mid to late 1980s, fear can only last so long and people decided not to be afraid of that anymore. And to counteract that, in the churches, we began to talk about congregational autonomy. That every congregation was independent of every other congregation. And we will do what we will do, and you do what you do. And if you feel like you need to write us up, you go ahead because we don't read your paper anyway. That's what happened somewhere toward the mid to late 80s. And so now there is this sense that we are independent congregations. And while it is true that every congregation of the Lord's Church is autonomous. We lost something incredibly precious in that time. We lost our fear, which was okay, but we lost our sense of brotherhood. We lost the sense that we're a part of a magnificent movement of God in our time, that we belong to each other, and there is something that God is doing here, not just in this congregation, but through his people all over the world. We lost that sense that that was happening. So today we come to a time in America where churches don't cooperate as much as they used to. You probably know this. When I was growing up, you didn't just know the preachers of other congregations, you knew the members. You would go and you would sing with them, you would attend their gospel meetings, you would be there whenever they would do the things. You had this relationship with people that rarely happens these days. We simply don't do that so much. And again, reflective of America. You live in a neighborhood right now. I have a feeling that people, a few houses down, are people you don't know. There was a time in America, if somebody would knock on your door, you would say, well, come on in. When was the last time somebody knocked on your door that you didn't know, and you went, wow, I'm so glad you're here. You don't do it, do you? In fact, you kind of think they're Jehovah's Witnesses. But you don't do it. Those are the people who knock on your door. We've become isolated, and in the time where we have all these communicative devices, We don't have a lot of real friends. We have a lot of Facebook friends. We don't have a lot of real relationships in our lives. We've become isolated in America, and churches have become isolated as well. We're reflecting the trend that is in our nation. As Americans, we are less likely to commit to anything long-term. As Americans, we are less likely to keep our word less likely to enjoy or even appreciate sacrifice, and more likely to want to do what we want to do than ever before. In the church, it reflects in our worship, it reflects in a lot of other things that we do. It reflects in our evangelism, guys, and this is the thing that's important to me right now. It reflects in what we see in the answer to that prayer of Jesus. Pray the Lord of Harvest that he will send workers into his harvest, and let it be me. I think it reflects in that, in that we are less evangelistic than we used to be in general. In our time, when it comes to the Great Commission of going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature, Mark 16 16, or going and making disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28 19, we're a, little, we're a little less likely to be doing it. There are four kinds of churches that I see among us today in, in our brotherhood. Four different kinds of churches as it relates to the way that we evangelize and do. And when I talk about the four different kinds of churches, let me just say that these four kinds of churches are made up of individuals who also reflect these four different kinds of attitudes. I want you to ask yourself, what is the Buford Church of Christ? Where does it fit among the four different churches we're going to talk about? And where do I fit when it comes to the way that I reach out? I want you to I want to tell you that first of all, the smallest grouping of churches among us are what I would call inside in churches. What do I mean by inside in? Well, just let me back up. I, there's one before that. Uh, let me just say that one the smallest group is actually not the inside in, the smallest group is the dead church. You remember that statement that's made in the book of Revelation? When he writes to the church at Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. That's what he says about them there in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What's a dead church? Well, it's not a church that just meets together and sings funeral songs. Let me tell you what a dead church is. A dead church is a church that doesn't love the lost very much, and they really don't even love each other very much. You can kind of tell when you're in a dead church. A dead church is a place where people will stake out their pew. Uh, Have you ever seen that, ever been in a church like that? I I was holding a meeting one time, and uh, we had a meeting on Saturday night. A lot of people came, and this one young girl came, and she said, well, I'm going to try it again tomorrow morning. I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm not a member of the church. I was invited here tonight, and I've been invited to the meeting. I'm going to try it again. I was invited before, she said, and and I don't know anything about the church. And so she said, I came in, and I I was coming in sort of last minute, And I I walked down the aisle, toward the outside aisle, and she said, I went down about five rows from the front, and I sat down on the end of the pew because nobody was there. And she said, I had been sitting there only for a really short time when an older lady came up and said, you are sitting in my seat. You're going to have to move. And she said, I didn't know anything about the Church of Christ. I thought maybe you bought your pews. I didn't know. And so she said, "I thought, okay." Well, and so, so I moved back, and I went about three fourths of the way back, and I sat down. And the services started, and she said it had just started when a young woman with two children came up, and she said, "You're going to have to move out of this seat. You're sitting in my seat." And she said, "So I got up and I walked out of the building, and I've not been back." And I said, "I want you to come tomorrow for sure. I, I want you to be there." And the next morning, I spoke and I told this story. And I said, and I know the names of those two ladies, and if you don't respond this morning, I'm going to call your name. I was lying through my teeth. I didn't know who they were, and I had to tell them that. But I'm concerned because in a dead church, we're more concerned about saving our seat than we are about saving a soul. Dead churches are like that. Fortunately, there aren't that many dead churches among us. There aren't very many at all. But the the, the biggest group of churches among us are the inside-in. Can I tell you, the inside-in churches are churches that really love each other. I mean, they really love each other. Do do you remember when Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, John 13, 34, and 35, you can identify churches because they they love each other. Inside-in churches really do. I'm telling you, if if you're an inside-in church, And somebody gets sick, they're going to get a lot of casseroles. Somebody is going to be over there all the time saying, can I do something for you? Can I help you? Inside-in churches love each other. They really do. If you fall out of faithfulness in an inside-in church, and you haven't been there for a while, there is a very good likelihood that somebody from that church is going to come and look you up and say, oh man, we miss you. We need you back. And and, and when you would say to them, look, you don't judge me, they would say, I know I can't judge you, but I have every right to love you because you're family and we really want you back. Inside-in churches are great at that. You'll see them greeting each other in the foyer, talking to each other in the pews, hugging each other every once in a while. Inside-in churches really love each other. And the preacher gets up on Sunday morning and he says, welcome to the friendliest church in town. But what he means and doesn't know that he means is, Welcome to the friendliest church in town if you're one of us. But if you're a visitor, we probably aren't going to pay a lot of attention to you. That's the inside-in church. They love each other. They don't really love the lost. They like the club they have. They like the association, the fellowship. They love that, but they don't get it. They don't get that message that Jesus had to pray the Lord of harvest that he will send laborers into his harvest. They miss that point. Can I tell you that inside-in, dead churches are just shrinking away. They won't be around much longer. Inside-in churches, no inside-in church is growing. They're all either holding their own, but more of them than not are shrinking. There are only two ways that inside-in churches increase in number. One of them is they merge with another congregation and then put on seminars about church growth. When in fact they're not growing at all, they just put two congregations together. The second way that they grow is to hire a preacher that everybody likes to listen to and steal sheep from other congregations. That's the other way they grow, and they think they're growing when they're not. Let me tell you something, if your numbers are going up and you're not baptizing anybody, it's like switching deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship is still going down. I'm just telling you, that ship is going down if you're not baptizing people. Inside in churches, aren't growing. That brings me to a third kind of church among us, and these churches are growing. I would call that church the outside-in church. This is a church that not only loves each other, but they love visitors. I'm telling you, they love visitors. It reflects to me something that was said by Isaiah long ago when he said, Many people should come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. These are people who really know how to invite people to church, and they do it. They do it. They invite people to church. They get something that everybody in this room needs to get. When a visitor walks in the door of this building, if nobody says hello to them and makes them feel welcome in 45 seconds, 45 seconds, that's all the time you have, if somebody doesn't make them feel welcome in 45 seconds, they will have a permanent idea about you that you're not that friendly. You have to catch them in the first 45 seconds. Let me tell you something else. If a visitor does this, and it's a courageous thing for a visitor to do. If he walks into one of your classrooms, never having been there before, if somebody in the first 10 seconds that he's in that door doesn't welcome him and say, hey, I'm so and so, I'm glad you're here, you're to sit with me, tell me about yourself. If he doesn't get that in the first 10 seconds, he's probably not coming back. All outside-in churches are growing because they really design their service and design their intention to welcome visitors. They have seeker services and seeker classes. They do all sorts of things to make sure that visitors are welcome. <laughs> I, had a, I went several years ago, Beverly, when we were living in Texas, had a few uh, days of vacation, and there was a church that I would heard about that I really wanted to, I really wanted to see, uh, because they were growing and and they really did have a a reputation for welcoming visitors, and I thought, well, I'd like to see how that works. So so we went, and I'm kind of laughing because it was over the top, guys. I'm telling you, it was over the top. We pulled into the parking lot, and we had just gotten into that parking lot when there was a guy there. It looked like something at Disney World. He stopped us and walked over to our car, and he said, "Uh, y'all look like visitors. And I said, well, yes, we are. He said, well, that's great. We absolutely love visitors. We have a special place for you to park. And he had a handful of purple flags that had suction cups on the bottom and went (laughs) on the front of my car and had a big V on this flag. And he said, now there's a guy over here who will show you where to park. And so we went about 100 yards up in that direction. There's a guy there that stopped us. He looked pretty official. He said, y'all look like visitors. I said, yes, we are. I said, did the V give us away? Or He said, no, we're just really thrilled you're here. He said, that's great. And he pulled up that uh, thing off the car. And he said, right over there, there's a place for you to park. Well, we went over and we parked in that place. There was a couple that was waiting for us. They were in their 70s, I guess, at the time. And uh, they said, y'all look like visitors. And I said, yeah, we are. And, uh, and uh, he said... Listen, we've only been at this church for about a year, but this is what we've been praying for all our lives. We have always wanted to find a church just like this. You're going to love it here. If you're looking for a church home, you just found one. Listen, just go right up that sidewalk, and, and uh, you'll see what you need to do next. We got halfway up the sidewalk, and there was a guy there with a handful of brochures, and he said, y'all look like visitors. And I said, well, yes, we are. And, uh, and he, said, he said, well, have you thought about being a part of this church he said let me give you some brochures here about some of the ministries that we have in this church and he had a handful of them and he just kept giving us these things and and said this is a great church and there's a place for you i promise you there's a place for you in this church well we went past him and we got to the door and there was somebody standing at the door that opened the door and said y'all look like visitors And I said, yes. And he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, right over here is our information desk. We have a lady behind that desk that can answer any question you have. You just go right up there. So we walked up, and the girl was behind the desk, and she had a little red rose, and she stuck it on us, and she said, y'all look like visitors. And I said, yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, And she said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, well, yes, I'd really like to know where the bathroom is. She said, oh, that's really easy. She said, it's right over there. I walked to the bathroom, I'm not kidding you, there was a guy in front of the bathroom door. He said, you look like a visitor. I said, yeah. We had, a, we had a real short conversation. I went in, he was waiting on me when I came out and he said, y'all are here in time for Bible class. That's one of the best things about this church. You're gonna love our Bible class. He said, what kind of Bible class would you like to go to? He said, we have a class for newly marrieds, we have a class for empty nesters, we have a class for recently divorced, we have a class for those who are grieving, we have a class, boy, he just went on and on and on. And I said, well, do you have an auditorium? He said, great choice, auditorium is great. Our preacher preaches and that, teaches that one. You're gonna love that class. Pointed toward the auditorium. I walked up to the doors of the auditorium. There was an elder of the church standing there. He said, y'all look like visitors. I said, well, we, we are. Uh, he said, this is a great class. We love our preacher. You're gonna, you're gonna love him, too. I'm so glad you guys are here. We walked in, and at the end of every row, every aisle, there was somebody standing there. And it didn't matter which one you went to, so we went to the end of one of the aisles, and this guy said, you look like visitors. And I said, yeah, <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, he, said, he said, well, I wanna help you find a seat. And uh, he, took us, he said, I'm gonna give you the best seat I can find. He took us to about the third row, right about there. And uh, he said, you're gonna, you're gonna have a great time today in class. This is, this is gonna be great. I sat down exhausted. But I will tell you this, I did feel welcome. I'm just <laughs> telling you, I felt welcome. And, and it was a wonderful thing that they welcomed us. They got it a little over the top, but they were growing guys because they didn't let any visitor go. There's something you probably need to know. On the average Sunday morning in any congregation of the Lord's Church, 5% of the people who are in that audience are visitors, five percent. The difference between growing churches and non-growing churches is that growing churches keep that five percent, and they do it on purpose. Others ignore them, and they go away. Outside-in churches are growing. But let me just say this. The philosophy of the outside-in church has a fundamental flaw. And that is that evangelism is inviting people to church. That evangelism is all about getting people in the auditorium and convincing them that the world outside is a terrible place, but if you will come in here, we will keep you safe. You will not be embarrassed. You will not be harmed. You will be helped every way we can help you. There's nothing particularly wrong with that, except it misses the Great Commission. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature means something bigger than that. Can I tell you that it means something much bigger than that? And there are very few churches that get this, but God does not intend for us to be the outside-in church. He intends for us to be the inside-out church. What does that mean? It means that most of our work is done outside of this building. It means that most of what we do is reaching out to a bunch of people who, if you invite them, will not come. I'm just telling you. If you were to go out right now, knock on every door within a five-mile radius of this place, and invite people to come, I want to make a promise to you. Most people won't come. They won't. You'll knock. They won't come. Some will. But most of them will not come. You know why? Because they don't want this environment, and they don't think it's real. What they need is somebody to go where they are, get close to them, show them what Christianity is, tell them what they need to do when they ask, give them the opportunity to be saved. In, in, in inside-out churches, many, many times the very first time that a person comes into the auditorium is the day that they are baptized. You know why? Because the work is done where the work's supposed to be done, in the world. This is a great place, and we need to be here. But we need to be here to charge ourselves up to be out there. That's what God intends for us to be. That's where he intends for us to be. Inside-out churches are somewhat rare among us. Now, I've talked about these four kinds of churches. Let me ask you about yourself. Which one of those best describes you? As a person, not just as a congregation, as a person. Are you just dead on the inside? Come because you're supposed to? don't really care about whether you see anybody when they're here and kind of wait for the services to be over so I can have punched my clock. I hope there aren't very many people. I don't believe any of you are like that because you're here tonight and you had to fight everything to get here. So I don't believe that's you. But how about this inside in? Yeah, I really like the guys that are around me, but I'm not really good with visitors. I don't really talk to people I don't know very much. And I'm just gonna kind of enjoy being around my comfort zone and that's what I'll do inside in. Is that you? Or it could it be that you're outside in. You're really good at inviting people. You're really good at welcoming them. I would ask you to do that. To invite them and to welcome them and that's what we need to do. But do you have this vision that God has a work for me to do way outside this building. He has a work for me to do to be salt and light in a world full of darkness. Not just to be here but to be there. Do I get that? Is that me? And then the other question that I have is, how do I get from where I am to being inside out? How do you get a congregation to go from being dead or inside in or even outside in to becoming inside out? Can I tell you that inside out churches aren't worried about keeping people safe? They want them to be safe while they're here. But our primary concern is not being safe. Our primary concern is letting God take care of us while we go conquer. That's what we're doing. We're conquerors in his name. How do I get there? Let me just give you eight, eight observations. I want you to write these down if you have something to write them down with. Eight observations, then I promise I'm going to quit. Here's the first one. These eight things will change the way you live. They'll change the way you see people. They'll change the way you act. The first of these observations is that God has a purpose for the life of every person you will ever meet. God has a purpose for the life of each human being. You know what that purpose is? Beyond the specific purpose that you might have in in individual ideas, listen to 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is no one you will meet that God doesn't want saved. From the terrorist to the Buddhist to the atheist to the neighbor next door. There is not a person you will meet that God doesn't want to save. Somebody says, well, I know that. None of these things are earth-shattering in their newness. You know this already but you don't think like this, do you? What do I mean by that? You go to Walmart. The girl who is checking you out has just had a fight with her live-in boyfriend, and she is angry all day. And everybody that comes by, including you, she will bite your head off if you ask her a question. How do you respond to that? If you know that she's a person God wants saved, you're going to respond differently than you probably normally would. When the guy cuts you off in traffic, that's a person God wants saved. It's going to change the way I look at them, change the way I think about them. I know that that's a person God wants saved. When I have that boss that is absolutely impossible to please, I realize God put me here because that guy is a person God wants saved. If I start thinking about everybody I meet as a person that God wants to save, it will change the way I treat people all around me every day. It will change what I do with my neighbors. It will change what I do when I'm in recreation. It will change everything if I realize this is a person that God wants saved. Here's a second observation. The primary mission for Christians is in the world and not on the church property. The primary mission for Christians is in the world and not on the church property. We looked at it already. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. By the way, if you go back to the Greek, there's an interesting thing here. Because sometimes you look at it and say, well, I can't go to Zaire. I can't go to Russia. I can't get to the Ukraine. I, I can't get over to the Philippines. I just don't have the means or the health or anything else to do that. And I don't have the opportunities. It's not what he said. When you read this passage and you look at it in the Greek, it doesn't mean that the emphasis is on the go. The emphasis is on the teach and the preach. As you go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Everybody here is going somewhere. You're gonna leave here and go somewhere. You're gonna get up in the morning and go somewhere. You're gonna go out to play golf, going somewhere. As you go, preach the gospel. Our primary, primary mission is in the world and not on the church property. As you go, do this. Here's a third observation. Many Christians, at least many Christians that I know, are unskilled in relating their faith to daily life. In Hebrews chapter five, verses 12 through 14, the writer said, when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have needed someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. Now everyone that eats milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he's obeyed, but solid food is for full grown people who by reason of use have their senses exercised or discern good and evil. God wants us to be street smart. And it strikes me that too many Christians that I know, know how we're supposed to behave in a building, but they don't necessarily know how we're supposed to behave in the world. They get it here. I wanna tell you by the time that I was 15, I grew up in kind of a hothouse environment with a wonderful, christian preacher dad and and i could give you every argument and every scripture why we don't sing with the instrument why we have elders in the church why we baptize for the remission of sins why we take the lord's supper every first day of the week i knew all those arguments and i could argue them and i did i enjoyed it i would i would go over to a a nearby baptist college and we would have discussions with the students and sometimes the professors and i knew every bit about how to defend my faith when I was doing that, and it was, it was pretty wonderful. I, I, I enjoyed doing that, but I'll tell you what I didn't know when I was 15. I had no clue how to withstand temptation. I didn't know how to deal with difficult people. I didn't understand compassion. I didn't get it. I knew how to behave in a church building and how we ought to worship while we're here, but I didn't know how to live. Too many people I know fit that category. I want to tell you something that if Christianity is something that you can only practice in this auditorium, throw it out because it's not worth it. Christianity is a life. Too many people are unskilled in relating their faith to daily life. Which brings me to the fourth observation that goes right on the heels of that that the primary task of the church is to develop mature disciples for ministry in the world, okay? The primary task of the church is to develop mature disciples for ministry in the world. Our curriculum and the way that we preach, the way that we teach, has to be considered that we need to preach to people how to do this, how to live this life, how to love people, how to talk to them about the Lord. I remember I had a discussion with uh, one of our Brotherhood publishing houses uh, not too long ago asking them how much material did they have teaching people how to actually share their faith in a real way in the world. And he said, really, we have almost none. I said, why? He said, because it doesn't sell. And we're a business. Nobody wants it. Well, we need to be wanting it, guys. We need to be wanting it. We need to have that. Among us, our job is to do that. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now listen to what he says. For the equipping of the saints for works of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Here he says, here's what all of our teaching and preaching needs to be doing. Equipping you to be able to go out there to do what needs to be done. To live and love and teach in a way that changes people's lives. That's our job, if we're not doing that, we're failing in what we're supposed to be doing here. It's not just about what we do in this building. Here's a fifth observation. Christians must learn how to live and articulate their faith in a sometimes hostile society. And if I could say that in another way, in an increasingly hostile society. Our society has become more hostile to Christianity. All you have to do is look at the news. All you have to do is pay attention, and you know that that's true. And I hear, people, I hear people every once in a while bemoaning the fact that things aren't like they were when I was a kid. That when I was a kid, people were more likely to keep their word. When I was a kid, people were more likely to attend services. When I was a kid, I, I wish we were back in the good old days where we were growing as rapidly as we did back then. I want to tell you something about that post-World War II generation That was an aberration in human history. It was an aberration that has never been before in the history of the world, and it's not that way anymore. It's not even really supposed to be that way. Our 21st century America is probably as close in society and attitude to first century Rome as any other time since the first century. And how did the church grow then? It exploded then. There is a difference today, and it becomes more clear as every day passes between the attitudes of Christ and the attitudes of society. You don't just blend in anymore. You stand out, and that's not such a bad thing. It's not such a bad thing. We have the potential for growing the best we've ever grown, and I can't think of a better time to ever be a Christian than right now, in our day. In 2020, God put us here for a reason. What I need to learn how to do is to live and articulate that faith. What do I mean by that? When he said go and preach the gospel to all all creation or to every nation, I want you to think about what that means. I want you to think about what he intends for us to do. I hear some people say, I know what I need to do. I need to live my life honorably. If I'm an honest person, if I'm a good believer, that everybody's gonna come to me and ask. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes they do, they'll ask for a reason for the hope that's in you. When your company has downsizing, and uh, everybody else is panicking, and you're not, they may wanna know why you have an opportunity. And you should use that opportunity. But Christianity can't be just caught. It also has to be taught. You have to open your mouth and speak. Live that life, but open your mouth. Otherwise, they won't. I had a lady that came in one Sunday morning. We were doing a, a television broadcast in South Alabama that went over South Alabama and Georgia and into, and into Northwest Florida. A lady showed up on church, at church one Sunday morning and came, wanted to be baptized. None of us had ever met her before. One of our elders met her and said, well, uh, how, where did you come in contact with the Church of Christ? She said, I really didn't. He said, well, then uh, who taught you? And she said, I've been watching the broadcast, and I knew that I needed to be baptized, and I didn't know any place to go that did this, so I I came here, I I live in Florida. I drove up here to be baptized. We baptized her that morning, she went back to Florida. The very next day, I got a call from a lady who was crying. She said, I work at the phone company. The lady that you baptized yesterday has worked by my side for more than 20 years. She said, I'm a member of the church. In all that time, in all that 20 years, I never once mentioned the name of Christ. I never once told her that I would even pray for her. I never once invited her to church. And she said she came in this morning telling everybody why they needed to be a Christian. And what a wonderful thing it was to have her sins forgiven. And she said, I realized what a terrible example I've been. She said, but I want to make you a promise. I'm going to be talking about my faith from now on. I want to be more like her. And I don't want her to be lost. And I want to work with her and make sure she stays faithful. And I'm making you a promise. And I'm making that promise to God. She had been an honest person. She'd live next to her, work next to her for 20 some odd years and the lady would never have been a Christian had somebody not taught her. You gotta speak, guys. We need to learn to live and articulate our faith. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready to give always a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He said, listen to this. He said, first of all, You live it, and then you talk it. That's the only way that people are gonna be converted. Here's number six, okay? Number six. Preachers have to begin to see preaching as a life choice and not a career. Guys, if preaching is a career, it's a terrible career. If it's a life, it's absolutely wonderful. Do you remember Paul? He said, I'm debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to foolish, and as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. That was Paul. He said, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me, for woe is unto me if I do not preach the gospel. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. What does he mean by that? He means there's nothing special about me because I'm preaching, but there's something special about the message. And I want that message to get out. We have in the church plenty of people who are professional office managers, who are professionals, organizers, promoters, mixers, and speakers, We don't have nearly enough people who have a message from God in their heart and a fire in their bones and they can't get quiet. Career preachers will stop preaching when you disagree with them or you make life threatening. People who made it a life choice, you can kill them and they'll still be talking till they die. They're not gonna stop. They made a commitment to God. Can I say in the seventh place that spiritual leaders, elders and others, have to be more concerned about authority than control in the life of a congregation. The job of a spiritual leader, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, is to be examples to the flock and not to lord it over the flock. In other words, you can't control, when every member of the church is doing this, you can't control everything that they do. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to lead them, guide them, and when they get off track, help them get back on track again. But don't make everybody have to filter every decision for the church through one small group of men. If they do, that kills the church. If the church is going to grow and be evangelistic, you can't control it. You can lead it. Be more concerned about authority than you are about control. There's a big difference. Authority is based in faith. Control is based in fear. Make sure you're based in faith. And then one more thing. Number eight, observation. Brethren and congregations have to begin talking to each other again. In Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, he said, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. I love that. When brethren start talking again, God listens. When we start talking and encouraging each other as brethren, congregations, to do more, God remembers. He never forgets. And he says later on, that he will spare him as a man spares his own son who serves him. God not only will hear us, he will protect us and guide us if we'll do these things and not be afraid to talk to each other again. Well, my time is up. That was introduction. No, no. But uh, my time is up. And, and, but brethren, there is a harvest out there. Somebody says a whole lot of folks don't want to hear about organized religion. That's probably true that there are people who are starving for Jesus all around you every day. They're starving for Jesus. And by the way, we aren't so much an organization as we are an organism. We are a body. We are a family. And every person on earth has a place where they can fit in. And all they need is somebody to show them. That's you. That's me. That's who God made us to be. I'm asking you to be that person. If you're that dead person, it's time to make a change. God brings dead people to life. The God who took the valley of dry bones and made them stand up an exceedingly great army can take your dry bones and make you a soldier. If you're that inside-in person, ask God starting tonight, open my eyes to see the opportunities and I can promise you that before the Seven days is over. You will be praying, God, I'm seeing too many. I can't get to them all. If you'll just start praying that tonight, I promise you, He'll bring people into your life. He always will. You'll see them everywhere. You didn't see them before. If you're an outside-in person and you think that the world is a really dangerous place and this is the only safe place, I'm reminded that Jesus talked about that the storms are going to come. Remember? He who hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man building his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it stood because it was founded on the rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them is like a foolish man building his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. Did you hear something here? It didn't matter whether you built on a good foundation or a bad foundation, the storms are gonna come. The floods are gonna rise, the wind is gonna blow for every single one of you. For me, for you, for every single one of us. The difference is that when the Lord helped you build that house, when you put it on the foundation of his word, you withstand the storm. There is no safer place in the world to be than in the midst of a terrible storm with the Lord on your side. So don't be afraid. And if you need some encouragement to do that, that's what this invitation is about. If you need to be baptized, please. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, just believe him and do it. But if, as I suspect most of you here are baptized believers, if something's been holding you back, maybe you're naturally shy, maybe you just think you don't know enough. I, I I wanna tell you something really important. You don't have to take a course You don't have to spend years of preparation. You just have to start. You just have to start. God will open doors like you won't believe, and things will change all around you. He'll change you and change your whole world if you'll just start. And maybe the place to start is right here, right now, asking God, open my eyes, help me see, help me walk through those doors. Why don't you come while we stand and sing? We